We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know, the less we bend. The more brittle we become. The easier to break. That wasn't an act of God. Wasn't it? It's okay to just look at the world and say, why, 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 I don't understand. Why, 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 Happy Halloween, dreadful listeners, and welcome to a spooktacular episode of FW Presents, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Very excited to welcome all of you, as well as all of my guests, this episode to discuss the brand new horror series streaming on Netflix right now, Midnight Mass. Our first guest is no stranger to horror podcasts. He is the host of the Long Box of Darkness, which covers all manner of macabre tales. And he also co-hosts Into the Weird, a Bronze Age Marvel podcast examining the weird and wonderful 1970s adventures of Doctor Strange, Morbius, Ghost Rider, and other Marvel comics. He is the OG Nosferatu, the Count Orlock of our group. Please welcome Mr. Herman Lowe. How's it going, Herman? Hey, great, Ryan. What an introduction. Am I deserving? I doubt that. But I am a little bit German, so I'll take the Count Orlok Nosferatu uh, compliment. <laughs> so uh, thanks for that. No oh, problem. It's going great. Uh, next, actually, our next guest could not be here tonight, but I do need to give a shout out to him because this episode, this subject was kind of his idea to talk about it. Uh, so I do want to give a big shout out to... Um, I guess we'd call him the motorcycle driving punk rock lost boy. Uh, that is Kyle Benning. Uh, sorry, Kyle. He couldn't be here last minute. He had to, he had to sum up, but uh, we miss him. So hi, Kyle. Uh, the next guest who she is a familiar voice to those of you who listen to give me those Star Wars, a woman who wrote her master's thesis on the vampire in mythology and culture. She is Akasha, my queen of the damned. Welcome, Angela Drew. Hello, Angela. Hey, Ryan. <laughs> She's going to leave it at that. All right. And that leaves me your host, the eh, let's call me the sparkly heartthrob twilight vampire Edward. Uh, but you can call me Ryan Daly. My guests and I have gathered this evening to discuss the Netflix original miniseries, Midnight Mass. Before I summarize the plot of the show, uh, we should put up a couple of warnings. First, beware of spoilers. Uh, from my introductions, you probably clued into the vampire theme of this episode. That is itself kind of a spoiler for the show. It doesn't really announce itself as being about vampires right out of the gate. Um, but we're going to talk about the plot, the characters, the ending, everything. So if you haven't seen the show yet, beware of spoilers going forward. Second warning, we're going to be talking about religion. Midnight Mass is very much about some people's interpretations of Catholicism, the nature of God, divinity, salvation, resurrection, and faith. At a glance, it might seem that the show is highly critical of aspects of the church and Christianity. 
I think that view is overly simplistic, but we're going to discuss it. We're going to talk about the way the show presents it and what we think the theme and the message is. We may contextualize that with our own personal religious views. I'll leave that up to each of us to get into as deep into the woods as we would like or not. Um, I don't believe any of us is a religious scholar or expert, so we might get things factually wrong during the discussion. Um, but the intention is certainly not to offend or even even really challenge anyone's beliefs. We're just talking about a TV show. That show being created, written, and directed by Mike Flanagan, who has kind of become a modern master of horror, or I think his particular lane might more accurately be described as terror. He tends to focus on subjects that are equally psychologically and supernaturally haunted or damaged. Lots of slow building, mood setting, creeping dread. Uh, this sense that the world is cold, unfriendly, a little predatory. And there's also stuff that goes bump in the night. Uh, it's not slaughter porn like the Saw franchise or things like that. Flanagan's work includes the films Oculus, Hush, two feature adaptations of Stephen King novels, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep, as well as a Netflix anthology series includes The Haunting of Hill House, very loosely based on the Shirley Jackson novel of the same name, and The Haunting of Bly Manor, based on the Henry James novella, The Turn of the Screw. Flanagan has a very solid pedigree for strong character-based horror and the long-form streaming format offered by Netflix. And that brings us to this seven-episode miniseries, Midnight Mass. Before diving into the plot, since I've been doing all the talking so far, where were each of you coming from before you watched this show? By that, I mean, did you know what the show was about? Had you seen any of Flanagan's other work? Why did you click on this show? So, Herman, where, did you, where were you coming from when you saw the show first? Right. I don't know who told me about the show, but it was definitely one of my friends from back home. Uh, because they know I'm a big Stephen King nut and I follow everything that is even loosely associated with King. And since Mike Flanagan has developed the reputation of, you know, being uh, sort of not a King clone, but he's definitely a big fan of Stephen King's work. So he's adapted it. He's, you know, he put some, some of the Stephen King horror tropes into his own writing and even the characters that you could recognize from a King novel. I thought, okay, this is him doing something in collaboration with King, because that's certainly how this friend of mine who told me about this presented itself. But then I was pleasantly surprised to realize this is completely Mike Flanagan's own thing, his own creative work, and he's got full control over it. The inspiration from King might be there, although later as our discussion you know, grows, I'll contest that. But I was very surprised and I enjoyed it. Ultimately, I at, at first was a little bit disappointed, but, you know, uh, thinking about it in preparation for this podcast made me realize I actually quite enjoyed it. And that's how I came to the show with, with this one idea. And then that was completely chucked out of the water once I started watching it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, I'm glad that there wasn't an a, a overt Stephen King influence or a direct involvement from, from King himself. Yeah, and I I think I probably heard you reviewing the first couple episodes on Twitter. I think that was one of the first times I maybe the first time I had heard it even mentioned. Um, and I knew yeah. I, like from that just like really quickly I heard okay there is a if not direct inspiration but some influence of King's work like Salem's Lot, Storm of the Century, Needful Things, 
And I was like, okay, I'm really interested in that. I knew Flanagan from his adaptation of Gerald's Game, which I thought was terrific until like the last five minutes of the movie. Um, and I had heard amazing things about The Haunting of Hill House, which at the time I had not seen. Now I have, and I'm in love with it. So I kind of went into this pretty much cold, like with only like knowing a few basic things um, and just hearing the general premise. And I was like, all right, I think I might know where this is going. At the end of the day, there's no way that we weren't going to watch it because it's Mike Flanagan. (laughs) And so far he's had more hits than misses, right? (laughs) So, I mean, even though I think he's almost like King where the ending doesn't always satisfy you. You know, King, King is notoriously famous for not being able to wrap up his books with a with a nice ending or an ending that would at least you know make sense in some cases sometimes it just completely goes off the rails and you just have to deal with it but um flanagan's sort of like that if you if you look at the haunting of hill house the ending wasn't very strong gerald's game you know not the best ending uh but i think he sort of um tied it well together in things like dr sleep um especially if you watch the director's cut which is like three hours long that's his complete vision so um i i thought he's improved over the years and he started out great so you know because of that angle the mike flanagan angle we should give him his due this is definitely not i was wrong in those first twitter reviews that's what i'm gonna uh, own up to because it had nothing actually to do with king Mm -hmm. so you know flanagan is improving as he's going along and and he's a young guy he's 43 this bodes well for the horror genre (laughs) and what we're gonna get in the future i'm very excited for what uh, he's he's gonna offer up next in in 2022, he's got a project for Netflix again. So great times to be a horror fan. Uh, so I had watched the first episode and then I was like, I think Angie might like this. And then after watching episodes two and three, then I kind of stopped and said, okay, we need to watch this together. So Angie, had you heard about this or did you know anything about it before I brought it up? No, you sat me down and said I needed to watch it. And did I tell you what it was about? No, you it? wouldn't. You wouldn't tell me anything, <laughs> and you would. O- you only told me that it was a horror show, and so I was. I was a little like I, I was humoring you at first. Quite honestly, I was just like, okay, we'll do this. But I was. I was captivated pretty quickly, and I think it was beneficial to me in terms of like not having watched a trailer or had heard anything about it. So I was going all over the place. Like at, at first I was thinking it was like a, a Mothman type of monster. <laughs> the, like, um, Cause there was just all of this kind of imagery with birds. And, you know, even at one point there's even just like this lawn ornament owl that gets um, a, a really close up shot. And, and I was just seeing like weird bird imagery everywhere and and it was it was a nice misdirect because like like you said i i have some background with with vampire lore and to be kind of taken by surprise i mean i i don't know if it was by like the the cats started making me think hmm this might be might be a monster i'm familiar with but yeah i i had nothing going into it had no idea credit Netflix, they did not hype or market this as a vampire show. Like, if you actually watch, like, the there's a a really cool teaser, which I will play at the beginning of this episode, um, and listeners can at least hear the audio version of that. But, like, the first full trailer is pretty bad. It just seems like this kind of slice of life about this 
kid going to his hometown on this island and uh, what is everything going to do? Like, and just kind of like, it really does not like anticipate the horror or what happens later in the show. Like they kept that kind of buried and It's even like, it's set to like um, an early two thousands pop song. I can't think of the name of the song now, but it's like, like that trailer would almost have turned me off. So you kind of credit them to, for not like, for kind of burying the lead of what this was about and letting viewers figure it out as they go. And, and so now I'll, we'll just kind of dive into it and I'll, I'll go over a kind of a abbreviated recap of these seven episodes. Midnight Mass premiered on Netflix on my birthday, September 24th, 2021. The show is set in the small fishing community of Crockett Island, a tiny island off the coast of New York or New England, with a population of 127. A few weeks before Easter, the island receives two new residents. One is Riley Flynn, who has just gotten out of prison after four years for killing a woman while drunk driving. Riley must return to the island of his birth that he tried so hard to escape and live with his parents. His only trips off the island are to attend court-mandated AA meetings. The other visitor is Father Paul Hill, who has come to replace the island's long-beloved Monsignor Pruitt, who fell ill during a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. While the presence of a new priest is initially shocking to the very devout community, Father Paul quickly wins over the congregation, except for the atheist Riley. Before long, momentous things start occurring on the island. Congregants of St. Patrick's feel not just spiritually, but physically rejuvenated, as if they're becoming younger and healthier just by attending church, culminating in a paralyzed teenager, Lisa Scarborough, standing up out of her wheelchair and walking again, defying all medical explanation. But not every strange occurrence on Crockett is good. Animals are dying, people are missing, and the pregnant school teacher Erin Green loses her pregnancy with no physical evidence that she was ever with child at all. Okay, rapid fire. We find out that Father Paul is, in fact, the 80-year-old Monsignor Pruitt who has been restored to youth after being attacked by and then drinking the blood of a vampiric creature on the road to Damascus. Paul brings the vampire, which he thinks is an angel from heaven, to the island and serves its blood to St. Patrick's congregation during services. When Paul dies, he rises minutes later, only now he has a powerful craving for blood and direct sunlight burns him. Let's not mince words here, he's a vampire. When Riley becomes suspicious, he is attacked and turned into a vampire as well. Father Paul believes that Riley can be converted to his new very specific interpretation of God's plan. But if Riley is to be an apostle, he is not the one Father Paul wants. Instead, Riley warns Aaron and his family of the horrible truth of Father Paul slash Monsignor Pruitt before burning himself to death in the sunlight so that Aaron will believe his story. After that, things move very fast. Father Paul and his followers conduct a midnight mass on Easter Sunday, where they plan to kill everyone only to watch their flock rise again as vampires. Things go awry, let's say, as the newly minted vampires take to the streets and drink the blood of anyone who wasn't at church. Meanwhile, Aaron, the town sheriff, the town doctor, and a few others try desperately to escape until they realize the scope of the vampire's plan and realize the only hope for all of humanity is to trap the vampires on the island and let the morning sun wipe them all out. In the end, very few people survive, but we get a lot of beautiful speeches about death and stuff. 
The show stars Hamish Linklater as Father Paul, Kate Siegel as Aaron Green, Zach Guilford as Riley Flynn, Annabeth Gish as Dr. Sarah Gunning, Kristen Lehman and Henry Thomas as Annie and Ed Flynn, Raul Coley as Sheriff Hassan, and Samantha Sloyan as Beverly Keene. All righty, Herman, what did you think of Midnight Mass? Big picture first. All right. I um, ultimately really, really like it. I'm not going to say I loved it uh, because I've watched so much horror in my life that, you know, the classics will always be there. You know, it's hard to to measure up to my ultimate favorites, but it's damn close. I will first go into why I initially did not like it. I um, Because, you know, you're a vampire fan, you're a horror fan, you like vampires. So it seems that the word vampire is never used in the show. So not. I thought, yeah, exactly. It's This is illogical because these folks, what, they've never read uh, Dracula. They've never read Carmilla, you know, or any of those classic you know, classics of literature. But, you know, then I, I started thinking, wait a minute, if every movie you're watching with every single Dracula or every, every storyline fe- featuring vampires is actually in an alternate universe, you know, because they almost never cross over, then uh, in this universe, uh, call it what you what you want, there was no vampire mythology for people to read. There was never, you know, in literature or in uh, folklore or in superstition, folks never had the idea of a monster called a vampire. They, in fact, call it an angel most of the time in this. So after I wrapped my mind around that, you know, that, that nobody, because not even the educated folks, I mean, the folks educated off island, like the doctor, Sarah or Riley, who escaped the island or Aaron, not even they, they ever say the word vampire, even though there's the blood drinking, even after Riley was uh, turned, um, they never mentioned that word. So this, this points to the fact that in this world, vampires don't really exist in the common zeitgeist or in mythology or as entertainment. So because of that, that started to make more sense to me. And then I enjoyed the show a lot more. You know, if you go from that angle that these folks don't know, this is the, f- the first time humanity encountered vampires in reality and Probably after this, they, it, you know, uh, the two get off the island might engender stories and then it goes into popular culture and folklore. So <laughs> that that was great. And then I started to really enjoy it. So I loved it. And I also love the horror in it because it's a slow build. You know, Mike Flanagan, he introduces you to all these characters. And by my mind, I think there's seven characters with, with full arcs, complete character arcs. And because of that, you, you're definitely going to have a favorite or two or three that you will identify with. And then when the horror hits, you're already invested in their lives. And that makes it extra disturbing when you see mm-hmm. terrible things happening to these characters you've come to enjoy seeing on screen. Uh, so I loved it. That's the long and short of it. Uh, well, not love. Let me say I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I think our buddy Mike Gillis uh, from Radio versus the Martians. I think he he has said at times like almost every horror movie has to operate in a universe where the horror genre doesn't exist because otherwise people would just know <laughs> what to do in any given situation. They would you could be you could anticipate a zombie outbreak if you see something like that. If I, you kind of <laughs> it's like okay, I know what happens in the zombie thing, so let's let's hit, nip this in the bud before it becomes a problem. So the only way you can have a zombie outbreak is if nobody has ever heard of a zombie outbreak before. So, so with the exception of like a movie like Scream, where there is a meta commentary on on the horror genre, like exactly, yeah, this this has to exist in a world where Dracula is not a thing. That that book was never published. Like that's not there haven't been a hundred movies about vampires for these characters to grow up with. Yeah, Ange, what did you think? Big picture. Well, one, I really enjoyed it. I, I really, I really did enjoy it, and I actually. 
experienced it in an odd way because not only did I watch it with you and you had seen the first three episodes. So I feel like there was a, an interesting, I don't know, energy in terms of like, you knowing what was coming. And I mean, I do have to admit the first two episodes, like this hasn't happened to me in a while. Like those, like they scared me. Like I <laughs> made sure we like locked all the doors and, <laughs> you know, and I actually wasn't, I was, that went away after the third episode when I finally saw the monster. Right. Like before I saw the monster, then I was like, oh, what is going on? But I do like how complex it is, how you can watch it as just a, a vampire show. You can watch it as a show that is is looking at human like flaw or frailty. You can look at it as um you know, a lens through religion, obviously, it just there's there's lots of like, you can focus on one thing and still have a full story, which is a little overwhelming. Uh, so it's <laughs> even like that my, my notes for, for this show are a lot. But I also I watched it with you. And then your parents visited and like the, a few days later, and then I immediately started rewatching it with your mother. So I had who, the benefit. Who fell asleep during every episode? Who fell asleep? Yeah, who fell asleep? So basically, she she kept me company as I rewatched it. <laughs> but I had the benefit of seeing, like, being able to watch it again very soon after my first viewing, and so I was looking for details, and I was able to watch characters. So you know, for instance, the first viewing, Millie doesn't seem significant at all, right? She just seems like this side character who's just you know, that's just Sarah's mom. And, but no, we find out that she's actually the catalyst of the, the whole story. And so I, I paid closer attention to her and, and, and noticed a lot of details that they had slipped in there that I just like, and, and most of the, most of the details in the show is, it was really funny because in the first viewing, I was a little annoyed by them. Like, I think you remember, um, in the first episode, I, I made a comment about, I was like, gosh, all of these actors look weird. They look like they're, they're younger people wearing old, like makeup to make them look older. I was like, that's really bizarre. Right. And you're just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking, I was like, it's been a long time since ET. I don't think I've seen Henry Thomas in a lot lately. So maybe he has, maybe he did age a little bit harder than some of us. And and then when you were like, wow, they look like they were makeup. I'm like, yeah, okay, maybe. And then like a few episodes later, I'm like, oh, Oh yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That actress is like in her early thirties and she was made to look like she was <laughs> 60 or 70. Like, right, good catch. Right. <laughs> well, Henry Thomas seems to be a bit of a favorite of Mike Flanagan because he, he also is. showed he, up in yeah. the haunting of Hill house. Yeah. And Gerald's game and Gerald's game. Oh, yeah. Gerald's game too. And I've always thought that he should have had a bigger career. I mean, he is a good actor, yeah. uh, but I think, you know, obviously Drew Barrymore's career took off after E.T. His didn't, it stalled for a while there. But, you know, I, I really like the guy. I don't know why. He's just, he he owns the roles he's in. Now, he's not the, the greatest actor of all time, but, you know, he's got this great delivery to him. He's got some gravitas to his expressions. I, 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 I'm always, re I always regretted him not being cast in bigger roles. Like, I don't know, Harry Potter's dad or something. <laughs> he would have been a shoe in for some certain type of roles. But yeah, sad, sadly, uh, we now see him in these smaller roles. Yeah, I, I always think of him from the movie Legends of the Fall, where his fate was to be Brad Pitt's yeah. younger brother who who dies during the war just to make Brad Pitt's journey more dramatic. And, yeah, and, and he was cuckolded. He's, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. His wife was basically stolen from him before he left for the war by Brad. It's terrible. 
what happened to him. Yeah. But a uh, great actor. So, you know, these guys show up and I'm, I'm happy. I'm pleasantly surprised, but then there are newer faces too. And I enjoy them. I mean, the actor who plays Hassan, mm-hmm. who is it? Uh, Rahul Kohli, right? Mm-hmm. He was in a show that my wife and I watched because I'm a big Mike Allred fan, you know, the artist, um, comic yeah. artist. And so his I zombies comic book series became a TV show. Have you watched that Ryan? And Angela? I haven't seen I zombie now. No. Wow. This uh, Rahul Kohli, who's Sheriff Hassan, he plays a fantastic, uh, what would you call him? Like uh, a doctor, uh, an internist. And uh, he's he's basically the only person who knows that uh, the the main character is a zombie who feeds <laughs> off the brains of these corpses taken into the uh, the mortuary. So um, a great ca- a character there, but totally different than Sheriff Hassan here. That shows his acting chops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew yeah. I knew some of the cast. I knew Annabeth Gish from a couple things. She plays uh, Doctor Sarah. Um, I knew Hamish Linkletter, uh, who plays Father Paul, the star of the one who was in the HBO movie Live from Baghdad um, and uh, several other things. I, I really liked him. Um, Kate Siegel, who plays Aaron Green, I was not as familiar with, but come to find out she is the wife of Mike Flanagan and has actually been in almost all of his projects. I really liked her. I thought she was great. I actually, I found out, um, I was watching, as, as we were watching with Angela, I, I had a little bit of a head start, but I kept on thinking, I was like, you know, Riley as this main character, I kind of feel like he's the least interesting person on this island. I mean, I was like, I can, I can, I feel kind of akin with him as being like the outsider who doesn't buy into this religion and who's kind of like, that's, but when he tells Aaron that all he does is exist because he has no job, he has no money, he has no prospects. He's, it's like he's out of prison, but he's still in a cage of his own kind of like life and destruction. He has no point. I'm like, yeah, I see that. And can we spend some more time with the other characters? <laughs> yeah. And then when shocker, when he's attacked at the end of episode four and it's like, he's going to die. It's like, wow, where are they going with this? So then yeah. I know, okay. Episode five starts off. It's like, he's a vampire. And I was like, and I'm telling Angie, I'm like, okay, this is the setup. He's going to be a vampire, but he's going to be the good vampire, like the daywalker, And it's going to end up being this battle of the two vampires. And like, that's the whole thing. I was like, I know where this is going. And then at the end of episode five, he burns to death. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It didn't Did happen he? the way we thought. That's what's <laughs> yeah. so great about this. There's so many surprises and nothing is predictable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything when, when I you're... predicted on Twitter came yeah, yeah. <laughs> when, your main, when your main character the a sensible the lead the hero that you're expecting dies at the end of act two it's like okay well what, what do you have for a finale yeah you gotta give you gotta give yourself a little bit more credit though ryan because I, I remember at the end of that episode um when the the vampire just kind of like the last shot is a vampire like going into like going into riley's face which is a great shot um i had a moment where i was like oh my gosh i think like he's not dead he's gonna come back and you were like no he's dead and then and then we were like going back and forth i was like no it might be like blade and then you were like all right okay maybe and then you thought of the fact that the um his dreams might not be dreams they might be prophetic visions and Mm. And that's when you guessed that him sitting out in the water watching, like waiting for the sunrise might be hinting at how he was going to die. That's of right. Course, I, yeah. yeah. But I and, thought it would be at, thought, at the end of the story. Yeah, I was like, was that'll episode, be the end of yeah, episode seven. <laughs> that he would, that he was going to stay and help and, you know, be kind of like the blade of their, of their little team. 
and we, you know, we were both really surprised when that didn't happen. But I, I think the the beauty of Riley's character is like the, the fact that he's so boring and stuck in time, which that's what the island is too. He yeah. he's like this interesting foil for the other characters. Like he makes the other characters more interesting. And then in hindsight, he's more interesting, right? Like once we see his purpose and how and how all of these strings are kind of coming together. And I I mean, something I, I was thinking about is the fact that the four main players who kind of save, like essentially save the world because they keep this this you know thing from from getting off the island, you know, virus, monster, whatever, there there's four of them. And all of them are reluctant, you know, re- reluctant people on the island. Like they, they don't want to be there. Yeah. Right? Sarah doesn't want to be there. She's staying for her mother. Hassan doesn't want to be there. He's, you know, he he's kind of there as a like a little bit like he's 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 like I tried. I'm giving up. I just like I just want this quiet life. Yeah, he he ran away from the NYPD to escape the bigotry yeah. after 9/11. He talks about like right. it wasn't safe for him and his son. So he, he kind of he he pissed off the wrong people and he just needed, you know, a quiet exodus. But yeah, he's not right. and he, but he doesn't well, yeah, he didn't yeah, he's, he didn't he's move not there welcome he there. To be on that. Yeah, he's like, I, I want to be on a fishing island. Like, no. Um, and Riley, of course, like the, the the obvious, you know, him coming back with this like horrific, this horrific accident that he call, caused. And then there's Aaron, who you know is coming back as a way to save herself, but she doesn't want to be there, and she's feeling ashamed about having to come back. I don't know. I just found the four of them so interesting. And, and the more I like tried to like dip into the obvious Christian tropes and undertones, like they, they feel like, like the four gospels. It's like the, the four gospelists who are spreading the good word. I, I don't, it's interesting. Cause like, I, I didn't get that until Riley because Riley's, real function is just a messenger mm-hmm. like he's bringing word to the others and that the re- they would have all died had he not done that yeah mm, right. yeah I, I think i i do think it is set up uh, i mean throughout several episodes it, right in the middle we get these one-on-one you know framed as alcoholics anonymous meetings and it's also interesting that Mike Flanagan is a recovering addict, so he, I'm sure a lot of this was taken directly from his own experiences. Um, but these conversations between Riley and Father Paul talking about, the, you know, Riley's atheism versus, you know, his, Father Paul's belief and the nature of God. And, and was there a larger hand dealt with the fact that Riley got drunk and killed somebody? And Riley can't, not, can't accept the fact that any kind of just or loving God would have allowed that to happen. And if there was a God who knew that would have happened and chose not to stop it, chose to let that innocent girl die, why would that be a God that anybody would want to show reverence for? Like what makes that, what makes that kind of God deserving of your love and your praise and your belief if he allows horrible things to happen on earth? 
And I thought that, you know, Father Paul kind of came back at, with, with a very interesting take when he says, you know, the, the, like the presence of God does not absolve people of their own accountability or, or, you know, that doesn't mean there's no such thing as free will. The fact that there is God, like he, he's not in charge. So just because you got in the car, you drank too much, you were in that accident, you were responsible for killing that girl. If there is a God, maybe God's plan was then to find out of that horrible tragedy, find something good, some small, perhaps an imperceptible good redeeming quality from that horrible tragedy. And Riley can't accept that. But if you think about without that accident, without that death, without Riley going to prison, without Riley losing all of his money because of that, he wouldn't have been back on the island. And if he hadn't Mm. been back on the island, he wouldn't have seen Father Paul and the vampire. He wouldn't have gotten turned and he wouldn't have rejected it. And he wouldn't have been there to spread the word, to become the apostle who, who spreads the warning yeah. to the others. Mm-hmm. So I, I think part of that is the, the, his, his last look when Riley is on the boat, like just, he stops seeing Aaron, he sees the girl that he killed. And I think part of that image is to signify that this is why she died or, or maybe yeah. if not, why, then this is the one good thing that came out of her death was that he was able to be here and give that word. Because Father Paul says like God will take our actions and make like our bad actions and make something good of it. So it's more of like he's using what's in front of him. Not that he, not that he's making that horrible accident happen. It's okay. That horrible accident happened, but how about we now use that to save the world? Just like Mm. he's going to use Aaron's, horrible abusive relationship to bring her back as well because she could have gone anywhere yeah this is an interesting uh kind of idea because you know riley for me he was always going to be the lamb to the slaughter you know mike mike flanagan was for me personally i I thought that yes he's gonna die but he's gonna die heroically sacrificing himself because it's the same with the other character joe they've done such terrible things that there's no way they could continue to live even though they might have, you know, come to grips with it, you know, they still have that um, idea that they killed these people, these innocent people. And uh, well, uh, Joe didn't kill anybody. He um, got drunk and, and wounded the daughter. Or the, the gun mayor. that paralyzed Lisa. That yeah. paralyzed her, Lisa. Yeah. So, um, you know, these two characters for me, I knew they were going to, they were going to bite the big one sooner or later, because um, I know Riley was probably going to be the hero, but um, you know, think about it. If you were, you know, the person writing the story, this person has done something so reprehensible, even though it was an accident, but it was directly Riley's fault, you know, a fault of his alcoholism, that he cannot square it with himself. He's having these horrible dreams. Even if he saved the entire island and did not die, he would still not be able to live with himself for long. So, you know, I knew he was going to die at some point in time. I was not prepared for when, though. And um, his death was very significant because if you think about it, he was one of the four, like you mentioned, who wanted to escape the island. So think about them as children, how many times they must have rowed out on a little boat, which was the only thing they could probably handle themselves. They couldn't handle one of the big boats when they were young and they would probably have seen how far they could go. And then they would go back. So Riley having this dream of him sitting in the boat, but not being able to go anywhere in still waters mean that, you know, the fact that he returned to the island after falling from grace, you know, if you want to use a bit of a Lucifer, you know, metaphor there is him, you know, saying that he won't be able to escape ever since he had that dream of him sitting in a boat, that was proof that he would not be able to leave again, 
because after all, he returned to to hell, <laughs> hell, the hell of his childhood, and um, and he his problem with religion was that the Catholic Church makes it too easy. You know, you can be um, you can do the worst possible thing there is. You can be a serial killer. All you have to do is come back to God and say, "Forgive me," and you will be and you will be allowed to enter heaven. That's what he had a problem with. You know, the fact that he deserved this punishment, nothing could wipe it away. And how could he then, you know, come back to a religion that says, oh, you just have to accept God and you will be absolved. So, you know, that's, that's I think, the, the power behind Riley's character. He's that reflection of, of, of obviously Mike uh, Flanagan's view of religion, but also in the, the book, that's, he's the only character that comes to this problem from that perspective, that you can't just easily wipe away the sins of the past, not easily, but you know what I mean? It, uh, in the Catholic church, there is that idea that, you know, the worst possible person can be redeemed. In Riley's case, he doesn't want to be redeemed. You know, um, he doesn't even want his death to mean anything. That's just a byproduct of what happened to him, you know, when he became a vampire. So I love, I like that, you know, fact that they had to introduce this character into it. And uh, it's a very integral part of the story. And then you get the opposite end of course, which is probably Bev or, or far, Father Pruitt in the beginning, but he, he is essentially a good-hearted person. Bev, on the other hand, she's, we, she's we, we need to spend <laughs> We need to spend a lot of time talking about her. Um, yeah, definitely. Ultimately, probably the, perhaps the biggest villain of the show is actually not the, the enormous vampire demon thing. <laughs> yeah, but, it's Bev. <laughs> um, it's, it's Bev. It's the woman who weaponizes her religion. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to her. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with everything you were saying, but also like the, the thing about Joe and before his fate was ultimately known, like I, I was kind of thinking about how, how tragic it was that, you know, he, he shot this girl, paralyzed her. And then because of the healing gift, quote unquote gift, um, that, that father Paul brought with him, like that she's able to walk again because she gets that she is able to forgive him. She goes to Joe's house in this very emotional scene. She goes to his trailer and for, and forgives him and, and it, it almost ruins him. But without that, like hate and guilt, he has he has nothing else so he goes he he reaches out to father paul and starts going to their aa meetings um but that's also what leads him to father paul when paul has been turned into a vampire and then that leads to joe's death so it's like it releases like healing like her, her her the miraculous cure led to her forgiving joe which led to joe seeking out the father paul which ultimately led to joe's death so just like this weird yeah. sequence of events it's like okay are we saying like are are we saying that the the forgiveness was this a mistake or was it something like that there's a bitter fruit from the like the the it's growing out of the seeds of this the blood that they're drinking in in, in church well that's to suggest like so when herman said the um about Riley kind of going to hell, like returning returning to the um, the island. It was actually something that I, I have a friend who is um, devoutly Catholic, and so he watched a few episodes of this to help bounce ideas. And he like, which we can talk about later. He really disliked this, and we could talk about. Um. I can tell you about why, and I think you'll you'll find it interesting. But something even before he watched it, I was explaining some of the like the the weird tropes. And we kind of came around to the idea of like the island perhaps um, symbolizing purgatory, 
because mm. purgatory is where you kind of sit to burn off, like to, to purify, you know, to, to shake off that, that sin and to kind of get yourself to a state of grace and to get your body, like, you know, in heaven, and Aaron talks about this a little bit, but like in heaven, that, that's where you're at your perfect self. And it's like this, like the island's kind of like this percolator of like, you're going to sit and wait until you're ready. And I guess if we look at Joe Colley's death as tragic, sure, like it, it looks like it, it's, it seems bad that that all led to him dying. But at the same time, it's like he was sitting there in purgatory and he wasn't changing and he wasn't going anywhere and he didn't realize why. But this very quick series of events takes him to a point where he is actually growing as a person and and having these these kind of epiphanies and, and these understandings. And they're all really tragic because they're too late. But I feel like his death is almost a release that he he gets to this point where he's been able to kind of exercise those those demons and you know yeah mm. yeah he 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 wants to he wants to obviously die but he wants his death to mean something but on his own terms he doesn't want it to be part of some grand scheme involving you know god or you know the master of your destiny other than yourself I think so, you know, he does definitely, I think, um, you know, wants his death to be significant and, and that does happen. It is in fact, but I did not like the fact that at the end, the girl he killed shows up in a vision. Now you could in- interpret this as, as many ways. It could be mean that she has forgiven him, meaning that all that he was looking for the entire series through was the forgiveness of the girl whose death he caused through his own negligence and, and alcohol. Or it could mean that there is a heaven and she is welcoming him into the fold. I don't like either of those two interpretations, if you know what I mean, because the character of Riley sets him up to be this person who who wants to be punished. He wants to, um, you know, suffer. And that's why probably he returned to the island. Uh, not that he had much choice, but there could there could have been another place he could have gone. He wants to suffer. Um, now, why he wants to suffer, I think, is just him, you know, being wracked with guilt. But there might be another reason. He might think suffering might eventually redeem him. You know, I don't like either of those ideas. I think he's just a character that he realizes this is going nowhere. And that's why he stays on the island. No change is happening because he's just waiting to die, really. And so when the opportunity presented itself, not not because of any of his doing, that he could die, you know, to save the the inhabitants of the island, the only person he really cared about was Aaron. And that's why he revealed it to her and hoping that she could do something with it. But, but he was very much a character that did not, um, he was not very active uh, in, in, you know, um, causing events to happen in co- causing the dominoes to, to fall. I think it just, you know, accidentally happened that he was turned into a vampire. Uh, and also, you know, then he decided to tell Aaron, he was very passive um, actually. So, mm-hmm. but, but what, what you said is true, Angela, you know, and, and Ryan, you too, um, there is some some connection there, and these, these events fall into place, meaning that even though Mike Flanagan is, is an atheist, he sets it up to look as if, you know, some divine hand did sort of take a hand. <laughs> Pardon the pun there, but yeah. So uh, there's so many concepts that they're playing with here that I can't pick and choose my favorites. I can, though, pick and choose the ones that I don't like, and those are <laughs> two ones. Yeah, yeah I feel like we we could look at that as oh yes, look, this is the proof, this is proof that there's a God because here she is, 
you know, mm. welcoming him. He also gives a pretty, a pretty vivid and, and I thought beautiful speech about what he thought death would be. And it also could just be that, like, this is what his mind is doing yeah. in its last moments. Mm. And I think you could, you could take it either way and they leave it. I do like that they leave these mysteries right where yeah. you you really di- there's really no way to know and you can you can read it either way and there's there's nothing that comes later that says that yes it it's saying there's a god or no it's saying that his you know his brain synapses were firing and this is the image that it created in his last moments yeah that's right because the the fact that there's a vampire that shows up and you know he reveals himself uh, you know, means that there is definitely some supernatural force at play in the world. Now, you could say it's a virus or whatever. You know, nobody analyzed the blood here, although the doctor did. Sorry, I forgot to say that. But even, I mean, she probably didn't have the skills needed to completely analyze, you know, saying that this is the, uh, it's a virus. She could just see that was something funny going on with this, this blood. But um, for me, this, this shows, well, one, what my favorite interpretation is that this monstrous vampire uh, is obviously a product of some some aberrant species that lived ages ago um, that seemed to be a parasite, you know, that pre- that preyed on whatever animal it bit, or or in this case, human beings. And um, you know, it could be even the the mythical god of the Bible, if you think about it. And then, ages ago, in obviously Arabia or somewhere in the Middle East, it made a disciple, much like it did, you know, a senior a Monsignor Pruitt. And then that disciple was Jesus because the resurrection happened. And then this is what jumpstarted uh, Christian, you know, uh, religion. I think I, I like that interpretation. The fact that obviously this, they, they realized their error and then they trapped it in a tomb in the desert where it couldn't escape from. And then, you know, Monsignor Pruitt set it free. Well, it was set free after a sandstorm, which, which uncovered the tomb. So, you know, I like that if that interpretation too. You don't even have to bring God into the equation. You can completely say that this creature jump started, you know, modern religion in you know Hebrew religion. You know, so I like that interpretation too. And Monsignor Pruitt is the second coming, sort of. <laughs> so there's so many things you could could read into this. I I did right before before we get into that. I did want to come back to the the setting of, of the actual island. Um, yeah. Because I, I am kind of like fascinated the way they set this place up as this place that is kind of out of time, out of touch with time. And I think that supports this idea of it being like a purgatory uh, a metaphor. Uh, I mean, Angie and I, we were even discussing, like at first I was like, do we know when this takes place? Like after the first couple of episodes, I was like, because do, do they even have cell phones? And she's like, yeah, um, Has- Sheriff Hassan's son Ali has a cell phone at one point, but, and then they make a big deal about the cell phone tower and then not having hmm. signals when at the very end, when they're trying to, to call out to get help. Um, and then the sheriff talks about nine 11 uh, as part of his backstory. Um, so yeah, it is supposed to be set in a modern contemporary time. Um, but it was, it it does feel like it's out of place, and we've seen that like this island, like the population is just it's it's dying. People, there's no yeah. there's no money there. Like the fishing community is drying up because of an oil spill a few years ago, and they can't fish exactly. as much because of EPA yeah. regulations. So people yeah. are just leaving, um, and it's it's 
pretty much it's becoming a ghost town so no. it is the type of place where like you know right. a vampire could show up and start picking off people and nobody would really notice right away just wanted to like point out the weird little details that we had, we had been looking at like for instance you know the phones in the houses are like they, they remind me of the phone that I, my grandmother had like the <laughs> yeah. big, yeah. like cord phones. <laughs> yeah the, 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 the curly cords and I, I like distinctly remember my father always having to like take the phone off the hook and untangle it yeah. um and the, like it was just like those phones and and at least two houses I noticed the um the Flynn's house and the Hassan house had um turntables with extensive record collections which i guess isn't weird but it was just like okay there's there's two places that just means they're cool i guess it means they're incredibly cool it it seemed like you know if one place had them but the hassans who had just moved i i don't know but then the posters right like the the posters in in riley's room it was clearly like this time capsule where he had like left after high school and left all of his posters up and they were you know, they were they were posters that were uh, of movies and bands that were popular when like we were in high school, which was really interesting. I was like, yeah. oh, OK. Um, but the same was true for Warren's room. And Warren is still a teenager. And so the mm-hmm. fact that he has all these like 90s and early 2000s bands and posters on his wall, I was like, wait, why? Mm, yeah no you're right there's definitely as if they're living off of things that they had when the island was uh you're prospering and now that the the island is in trouble economically they don't have those things anymore so they kind of have to go back to their brother's stuff or their you know sister's old uh you know um forms of entertainment they don't have access to anything new that also is one of the reasons why these people are so susceptible to extreme beliefs and extreme situations especially at this time because the island like you you mentioned ryan in your synopsis the oil spill caused this economic downturn and everybody's suffering and and you can see it in the upkeep of the houses although you know on weather beaten beaches or weather beaten you know towns always look like that but still it, it really gives you this feeling intentionally of this place is run down and um, this is directly also one of the Stephen King influences. This island is based off of a Stephen King short story, Home Delivery, from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And there it's the exact same thing. It's a fishing island. The fishing business has, not because of an oil spill, but it's, it, it's, it's uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, the fish have disappeared and the people are suffering. And then there's a zombie outbreak. <laughs> so, you know, um, the same here. Here's a vampire, but it's the same island. And um, I like that setting because it push, pushes people to the extremes. Uh, because you're suffering, you can't get off the island. And the life on the island is terrible. So where are you going to go? You could you could do something crazy. Yeah, it also I, it's one of the it's it's kind of a trope that goes along with like gothic literature and gothic yeah. horror, which I really dig. It like reminds me like the the fall of the House of Usher, Castle of Toronto. Mm. It's like the 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 setting itself is decrepit and kind of yeah. rotting from the inside, and like just going there feels kind of like a dead place uh, yeah. where, where like nothing is kind of like slowing down. And I just yeah. think that, that that helps kind of set the mood and the atmosphere that you're exactly, in a place yeah. that is uncomfortable, that is unhealthy. It, it kind of primes you. It gets in your headspace a little bit like to prepare to, to kind of, you know, be on, be on guard for bad things to happen here. Yeah. Exactly. Now think about it. Riley and Aaron, when they were teenagers, the island was already 
you know, and almost like, um, you know, the worst place they could imagine they wanted to be. Think how it feels for the, for the younger generation, his brother and Lisa and their friends. It feels even worse because now the island is suffering. So they're not as prosperous as they were when Riley and Aaron were teenagers yeah. and Sarah. Literally, the best thing they can do is go to a different part of the island, sneak away at night and smoke a joint. <laughs> like that's, exactly. And listen that's to the high point of their, yeah. It's <laughs> in heat doing <laughs> their business. Now, this, is, this brings me to a theory. Now, we've just spoken about the Stephen King, you know, island angle here. You know, um, I, I have this, this is a crazy theory, but I'm, I'm almost sure this is true. Uh, you know, Mike Flanagan has said in an interview or somewhere that he loves sleepwalkers. Now, a lot of people, not a lot of people love that Stephen King movie sleepwalkers that he just wrote the screenplay for, which wasn't based on any of his books. But Stephen King loved it, you know, and Mike Flanagan loved it. So the cats in that movie are a pivotal part of, you know, killing the sleepwalkers. Now, I'm this is just my crazy theory, but I'm thinking uh, Mike Flanagan was so in love with those sleepwalker monsters and the cats tore them apart at the end that this time he's saying, now I'm going to get my own back and these cats are going to suffer. <laughs> so all of the cats on the island are just wiped out after episode one <laughs> of this, you know, series. So, you know, I, I found that significant. Another king, you know, angle there, the cats, you know, the island being populated by hundreds or thousands of stray cats. And uh, that's where the kids go to hang out. You know, they go to hang out in this remote part, which is basically gone to the wilds. So I love that part of it. <laughs> you know, the fact that that's how we are introduced to the horror. The, the first real horror that we see is the, the, these dead cats everywhere. It has an apocalyptic feel to it, too. Oh, yeah. Right? Like this. It's like, what is this? It's definitely like, of course, like we have the the mayor who is talking Hassan's ear off while he's trying to take care of the cats, which I've got to say, as someone who, who grew up in New England, like that was a very New England <laughs> um, like ah. a New England authority figure thing, like that speech. I was like, mm. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Episode two, just like the the cinematography is great. There's a long single shot that he does of like the first seven or eight minutes. It's like three or four different conversations on this beach as they discover all these dead cats with lots of different characters coming in and out of conversations and them floating away and all done with one shot is really, really cool. Kudos to Mike Flanagan for that part. I mean, I was wrong though. Sorry, I have to correct something I said here. The first instance of horror, in fact, is not the cats being murdered, mutilated, uh, wiped out. It's in fact when uh paul hill who's you know secretly monsignor pruitt a revitalized pruitt comes back to the island and he's carrying this huge trunk mm. and uh he's struggling with it and as soon as he brings it into the rectory or whatever you would call the catholic priest priest's abode behind yep, the church yep. he knocks on the trunk and what and happens something knocks back knocks yeah back. <laughs> that was yep. the first instance of horror where i was thinking oh crap okay we're into it now yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in, the, they, in the eyes on the island they, where the like, you have all the cat's the... eyes and then like oh, you see the eyes that are too high like, <laughs> yes that's almost the evil dead kind of effect you yeah. know with this yes. creature moving through the forest you know you're seeing through his eyes yeah exactly yeah. um we do need to kind of get into the the religion of it all because mm. i think that is definitely part of what this show is about um not just the way it presents Catholicism and and the characters in here, but maybe what Mike Flanagan is trying to say in this. 
Um, a little bit more backstory. Flanagan has been working on this story, this project, for a long time. At one point, he conceived of it as a movie. At one point, it was going to be a novel. Actually, in one of his uh, his movies, Hush, the, uh, there's a character who is a writer who has a manuscript called Midnight Mass, and he had been like writing it out for like, a long time. And I think finally, after he had uh, he had had some success with Netflix, he was kind of given the green light to do this as a longer project that you know he wouldn't have to make into a a ninety minute or two hour long movie. He could really take his time with this, and that's why he decided to adapt it this way. So he's been writing this for a while, and they started shoot. They they he wrote this right before the COVID outbreak. Uh, they got shut down, and then they started filming it uh, during COVID. But I think it is impossible not to separate some aspects of this from what he was seeing in the world, and in particularly in America, where a large population seemed to have bought into a cult. I don't know if there's any other way of saying it. Um, I think I think he may be drawing some parallels between this congregation and the MAGA flock, um, to, to put it that way. He, he is showing how easily a group of people who have been fallen on hard times and are looking for some salvation, some relief, they can be taken in by a very charismatic speaker. How char- your mileage may vary when it comes to charismatic speakers in the two different groups that I'm talking about. Um, so, but certainly, he, he, I think he's kind of showing this particular church, this particular group has bought into this cult like behavior where th- by the end of it, they are willing to die for this belief, they are willing to kill for this belief for, for mm. because, because somebody tells them that God said it's okay. And I think very strongly religious people can be offended by that. I think others may say he's not describing all religious like that. He's just saying that this is a particular danger of it. Yeah. Um, again, like this was the warning that we had. I mean, I don't want to wade into too much territory that's going to uh, you know offend people, but I do think this is a major theme of this. We have to talk about what do you think he is saying about religion or the very specific religious people in this. I, I mentioned, we talked about Beverly Keen Bev, who is, I don't even know what her, what her title is actually. Um, yeah. But she is, she's like the main assistant to uh, the father slash Monsignor. Yeah. Um, and she is very smart, but she is able to twist any horrific uh, event and, kind of like frame it within the context of specific language from the Bible yeah. as if that justifies it, as if it's saying, well, God says this type of thing may happen. God says, if somebody like this dies, it was his will. So you're not really a bad person for killing him. And she just, I mean, she's pushing him to be like, at first it seems like she's kind of like, you know, his, his assistant. And then we see that she more than anyone is pushing this agenda and this thing and it may without being sort of the mastermind definitely the most cunning perhaps an evil (laughs) sort of of the of the sort of trifecta of the bad guys so yeah no she wields her her faith and her knowledge of scripture as a weapon yes and 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 uses against people and and categorizes them as as being you know one of us and not one of us 
and it's really interesting in contrast with. Um, and if you're not one of us, there we there is no place for you. Right. Yeah. Like literally, right. by the end of it, she's like, "If you if you weren't coming to church, you don't get to stay in our rec center when the sun comes up. You get to burn to death." And that's yeah. how she like ultimately destroys all of them. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. I think in contrast to Hassan, it it's really interesting because she is painting herself as. Um, this devout, you know, pure individual, and she's mostly um, quoting Old Testament scripture and twisting it. and And I really, I feel like the the character who speaks most um, eloquently and with knowledge about religion is Hassan. And, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it just it, and another thing I thought was interesting is I, I started just kind of looking at reviews and such. And, and I did read one that just kind of pointed out that there's really no discussion about Jesus in this show. It's like, yeah. there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of imagery that links into Jesus's story, but discussion of Jesus is absent. The only person who really talks about Jesus in any detail is Hassan in that really, I, I found compelling speech in the schoolhouse and yeah. otherwise, it's just all of these illusions, like this thick, thick layering of it, it's almost too much, right? The um, like seven episodes, these um, the wood carvings during the retelling of Monsignor Pruitt being you know, kind of changed, and the like the, those those are like hearkening to the Stations of the Cross, and there's fourteen of them, but there's only seven in the show. And they they mirror the stations of the cross, and then we have, um, you know, this very very laid on thick um, work with the communion, and how that's been kind of completely perverted, right? Like they they take mm. everything that that the communion is and, and flip it on its head, which um, which is one of the things that my friend was really kind of. Um, upset about him he wasn't yeah the the interesting thing was he he wasn't necessarily upset but he called that he called the work that the show does with religion lazy and and almost and he called it like he he said it's not smart which i was like okay Mm. that's interesting i'm like as someone who's not catholic it it seemed like they were really dipping into things like you know that this mirror of the road to damascus and how we have you know the, the actual Paul who was converted to Christianity when he when he's on the road to Damascus and, and Jesus speaks to him and then we have this kind of um, inversion of that where this you know this individual meets this I don't know anti definitely not you know the invert not antichrist but like a demonic figure who almost turns him so into religion that he's almost like gone 360 and is like not christian anymore yeah. um mm. but he said it was cheap in terms of oh yeah and he gave a really interesting analogy where he he said like i guess imagine a city that you know really really well and there's a you know a movie or a show that's that's set in that city and they just kind of keep getting details wrong like they mm. they don't have these um interesting local like quirks right they're just a little bit off or um i I know geographic landmarks are wrong yeah like i remember i i was like when i saw the the um the man from uncle 
the the remake a few years ago I was like I, I thought it was really cute that they were in Rome and and then I there was this like this moment where they're on the Spanish steps and then they're at the Coliseum and it's really quick. And I was like, those are not anywhere near each other. <laughs> and, and it was like, it like totally took me out of the movie. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like they, they didn't look at a map. So I, I think that's what it was like for John where he was just like, wait a second. Like, you're just kind of like, like jumping through these kind of cheap hoops, which mm. I was like, okay, I get that. Like that, that's definitely mm. happened to me before. I wonder if he would have felt, I mean, we won't know, but I wonder if he would have felt the same way by the end of those, like kind of knowing. Right. Because only I mean, watched the first three episodes. Yeah. And if, if you're trying to find like perfectly authentic representations of Catholic dogma and, and how like a, a mass is practiced and everything like that, I don't know like if, if ultimately like this, this show about vampires is necessarily going to has to <laughs> right. is obligated to present it perfectly authentically. Um, but there's, but there's like, I, I think the big, one of the biggest things, and this is why I was starting to talk to you. Like I was brainstorming the other night with you, Ryan, about the fact that perhaps the, like, it seems like um, father or Monsignor Pruitt is in charge and the, the vampire is his, it's like his pet, but I think it's the other way around. I think mm-hmm. the vampire's in charge, even though like we don't hear him speak except for that weird mimicking thing, which I've never figured out. But he he's in, it seems like he's in charge and he's almost um, hypnotized him right. because there, there's things that he should know as a priest who has been who is like over 80 years old and is is very well respected in his, you know, in his circles that like for instance a priest would know that an angel doesn't have flesh and a priest would know that the like you don't have to add anything to the communion wine like if he believes in the the transubstantiation of that that wine then adding something to it would be unthinkable and and so I get there, there's these things where he's like, wait a second, like the priest himself is now being stupid of his own faith, which is what makes me think that he he's not in control, that he's been totally used. Yeah, I think, um, well, my experience with small communities, at, even with, with small communities who are predominantly Catholic in South Africa, is that no two are the same. You know, the, the rituals mm-hmm. are the same in the church, but they definitely come to this comfort level where they... They keep the things they like and the things they don't like about the ritual or the or the mass or or whatever. It's it's very much up to their uh, pastor or their or their priests, uh, you know, predilections. If they come to this comfort level where this is the way we like to do things, then they sort of like it's it's a slowing off of the things they don't like about the uh, Catholic rituals, and then they change. You know, they're totally different than let's say the uh, the adjacent towns Catholic, um, you know, uh, church. Not not totally, I should say, but you know, there's definitely differences between these small communities and how they practice their religion than it is, you know, between let's say big city Catholics, and that's why that wasn't a, a problem for me. So your friend John might, you know, obviously disagree with me here, Angela, but I know Catholics are more apt to to stay true to the doctrine and the ritual, and you know, but um, at least in my experience, and with other churches too, the Methodists, you know, the Dutch Reformed, which we have a lot of in South Africa, the Calvinists. They're all different, you know, based on their pastor and how he interprets, 
you know, what, what he should be doing, you know, so it's completely different than, than who mentored him would have been doing it. So, you know, but that is definitely almost bordering on blasphemy, you know, like adding something to the wine. I would see that's, that's taking it a step too far, but I think Pruitt, you know, like you say, he's being subliminally manipulated by this vampire, not verbally, or there's some kind of form of communication between them. And he's ever since he's been bitten, he's been under this vampire sway. So that, that for me accounts for why he's changing things. You know, this vampire has a level mm-hmm. of control on his subconscious, maybe that uh, he does not mind because whatever's been done to his brain has been squared with, with himself as a priest by whatever influence this vampiric creature has over him. So, you know, but you can explain anything away in any established universe, like, oh, it's magic or it's supernatural. But I could see where a Catholic would take offense at that, or not offense, but they would say that, okay, this is lazy writing. For me, it's just an, a, a, a cause and effect of the supernatural thing entering their lives. Because if we think about it, yes, Catholic priests believe in the supernatural act of this transubstantiation and the miracles which is all completely real for them. So in essence, every Catholic priest is a fundamentalist, right? Because they believe that the miracles actually happened. Whereas someone like my old minister from, from where I grew up in a small town, he, to an extent, he believes in some miracles like the resurrection of Jesus that definitely happened. But to another extent, he does not believe that all the graves opened up after Jesus rose from the dead and then the dead wandered the streets. He believes that's just, you know, wishful thinking upon the part of the other people who had loved ones. So, you know, he, he cherry picks uh, the parts of the, the miracles in the Bible that he likes. Now for me, father Pruitt falls into this category. He was someone who's very intelligent uh, or let's call him now Paul Hill, the young version. He was very intelligent. He, um, he even takes some science into account. You know, if you think about it um, uh, at the end there, when he talks, not at the end, in the middle of the series, when he starts doing the AA meetings with Riley, um, he's very accepting of theories and, and of things that, that are offered to him and he would evaluate them. So he falls into the camp of people who, who don't take everything literally in the Bible, you know? So that's why it was a big surprise to him when something supernatural entered his life in, in the desert there, where, when he got lost uh, as an old man locked in dementia. And then suddenly he had this um, uh, proof that he must have been looking for his entire life. Because after all, his faith was shaken in his youth when he fell for his, well, when he fell for Mildred, right? The mom of Sarah. And we will find out later. I don't know if I should spoil this, Ryan, but I'll, I'll let you spoil it later on in due course. So, yeah, go ahead. You can, yeah. Oh, okay. So we, we learned that, that Sarah, the doctor, is in fact um, his daughter. And Mildred's, you know, being the mom, of course. So they had an affair. It's very Scarlet Letterish, um, you know, what happened. And then, you know, that that was a revelation for me. But actually, it also then makes sense. He lost his faith probably, or or he had a uh, an issue with his faith way back in his youth when he had this transgression, when he had the sexual relationship with Mildred. But he doesn't seem to regret it. In fact, that's why he returns to the island to save Mildred. He's still very much in love with her. You know, which which shows me he's a different kind of Catholic priest. And that after that, everything else he does makes it okay for me. You know, the fact that he lost his faith when he was young and the supernatural entity that's now controlling him. Well, I think that is the point where, like, when he is profoundly, like, physically, physiologically changed by this this attack and this creature, this this thing that he finds in the desert, is he comes back with a mission that is not to resume his 
job of like spreading the word of God like he had been for however many decades before that. He goes back with a different purpose. He wants to bring this thing that he found, which he maybe in his bent psyche he believes is an angel. Uh, uh, maybe like it's it's it does have a hypnotic lock on him, but he sees this thing as a way of curing the woman that he loves and and bringing this thing back and then once it's hard to tell from there like where when his job kind of changes when it when it becomes more is it only after he dies and he's resurrected as a vampire now it kind of becomes this idea of spreading this form of immortality and the resurrection um if when that becomes their plan is it only like after like uh, an accidental trial and error when he finds out that that and we still don't I, I think that's still a lingering question is how does he get poisoned how does he die actually um in that third episode but i would i would say that he's like even though he comes back and he's delivering the sermons and he is trying to legit trying to save the people i think he is no longer necessarily an agent of I, I it, it's it's the phrase that you can't serve two masters i don't think he can be legitimately an agent of god and and be trying to spread that word while also working with this angel or this thing to to, to further his personal agenda which is restoring the woman he loved and maybe hopefully having that family like after death when the, when the ideas of death no longer matter, then he's like, it, it won't matter. Like he, yeah. it's kind of, he kind of gives up on the faith and it's just like, we're, we're, there's, there's something, there's a, a, a purpose grander than ours. I also think yeah. that's kind of why he's attached to Riley. He loved Riley from back when Riley was an altar boy. Um, not in an inappropriate path. <laughs> Whoa, type of you way. went I there. <laughs> no, I, did, I didn't intend to go there. That was unintentional. <laughs> no, I do think because he has that talk where he talks about that moment when Riley found the dead, was it a dead mouse? Um, yes, yes. And, and he like had them. I, I think there was no reason why Father Paul had to start an AA chapter just for this one guy, just for this one guy who just got out like an ex con. There's no reason to do that except he remembered this kid. This kid was special to him. Yeah years ago and he wanted to form that connection again so i do think this this is a a, this is a second chance for him to maybe capture some of the family and friends that he sacrificed to become a priest and maybe now he'll have a second chance to get that but i think so in doing so he is definitely not functioning as the pristine object of a catholic priest so yeah. to hold it to that standard, I think we have to say no. This is a, this character is clearly corrupt to one to the degree of how evil his corruption is. We can argue, but yeah. you can't hold him to kind of like the same standard that you would hold yeah. to any other priest. Yeah, this is what the series does really well. Um, you know, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about a broader context again. Um, you know what Mike Flanagan did in this with religion, with with even something like bigotry. This island itself you know has these characters that seem to be archetypes or that seem to be stereotypical characters like you got the priest but they never take it to the stereotype they always show you a different side of this character now going by the rule that all characters need to be flawed in order to make them great characters mike flanagan does this brilliantly but you know that's why let's say father Karras in the exorcist worked so well you know he was a flawed character he was a you know priest slowly losing his faith this is the same kind of thing, but it's different because this priest, Paul Hill, he's motivated by love, you know, love for a woman, 
but also for the greater community. But he's seeing that as that love is sort of spreading because after all, Sarah, he knows she's his daughter too. So she will benefit from this as well. He wants to be a family. He wants to return to a family that he never really had. He sees this as a second chance. So he's already flawed from the get-go, from the very beginning. So he's going to, now this is what Mike Flanagan is doing well here. He's trying to say that you can take an established institution like religion, and this is what's been happening in America and South Africa and all over the world, and you can twist it or utilize it for your own ends, for your own needs. And people have been doing this since forever. You know, you take something that's been established and then you have a desire. And then Bev does this as well, the character of, of, of Bev in this. You take it and then you square it with your own I, uh, desires so that it follows along with you and goes hand in hand and you can justify whatever you've been doing. Uh, in this case, by referring to religion, uh, but also by, you know, let's say using a political system to say, this is the, this is the reason you're here. You're going to, you know, um, revolutionize whatever flaws were in the system and you're going to create something better. But actually this is squarely because of his desire being that he wants to save the life of Mildred and get the second chance at love. And uh, so I'm pretty sure that, you know, if that worked, if in the long run, everything was golden, he would have, again, probably had a sexual relationship with Mildred, who knows, but he's firmly committed to this new path where everything is new, even him being a Catholic priest. Now, you, you know, they're forging a new path. And Mike Flanagan's, he, he, I think the reason he put that in is what you also mentioned, Ryan and Angela, that this is what's happening in the world. You know, you have these, these um, religious figures or political figures or figures in power. They have this ability to, to twist what, what uh, people are there for, you know, religion or for, for their political views. Let's say they're far right or something. People believe in them. And then they put that in a new direction, whereas where the p- people who are following them would never previously have gone. You know, because it's not square with their values. It's not square with their religion. But now, because of this figure being so inspiring, suddenly it is. So they're being manipulated by the system. You know, Father Paul, or what would you call him now? Um, Pruitt, <laughs> Pruitt Paul. He is doing that. And that is what Mike Flanagan does well. And he does not go to the stereotypical side. Like, these people are all religious, but they're not bigots. In fact, they there are many people on the island who are of mixed race. You know, that's even mentioned at the potluck uh, that they have, you know, like, for instance, um, who is, who is, a, okay, that's why they were, uh, they were inclusive of a son and his son, Ali. Uh, they're not, they don't condone their religion, their, their, that they're Islam, but they do want to include them in the community because there are so many mixed race marriages in there already. And also then they don't go to the stereotypical side of Islam. They show that Hassan is an educated, informed, intelligent Muslim, still firmly, uh, you know, believing in his faith, but he also employs rationality and reason. And that's antithetical to what most people are thinking about Muslim these days. They're thinking they're all irrational, uneducated suicide bombers, and that's wrong. And that's what Mike Flanagan also does well. He shows that there are two sides to every stereotype, to every belief. You know, the priest is not always a child-abusing asshole. Uh, you know, he is a, a man who can love. And, you know, the, 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 the Muslim is not always, you know, someone who, who's a terrorist. He's someone who's informed and who's, in fact, a police officer, for God's sake, who wanted to redeem the image of Muslims after 9-11. So Mike Flanagan gives that to us. And that's, for me, that's him saying that, hey, open your eyes. This is what religion could, religion could be. And these are the dangers. Um, so it's pretty great. 
But he, he also very deftly shows the ignorance and sort of like of unintentional yeah. prejudice of the island towards uh, Hassan and his son. And oh, yeah. part of it is just the simple not understanding of what, you know, Islam is and, and the Muslim practices, you know, thinking it's like, boy, you know, it, we, we really would like to have you in our church services on Sunday. It would, it would really help bring the community together, you know, if they could see their sheriff there. And then, it, like, it's like, well, oh, well, we know you've got to go, you know, to your mosque. He's like, well, that's on Friday. He's like, well, then your, your Sundays are free. That's perfect. And it's like, um, and I think, like, you, you mentioned, I think Angie mentioned the mayor earlier. And uh, and it's so I, I think he's kind of like the perfect depiction because he is so quick to follow Bev and, and just fall in line with her because you think of a mayor as the leader of the community. This guy is not. He is an idiot and he is such a gullible follower um, that he, he just like completely shirtless in terms of like just how, how much authority he has. And I think the, the scene in the school when they're having that debate is perfect because you just, they, he just has so many reaction shots to the mayor just sit there when Hassan is talking about, it's like, actually, you're mischaracterizing. Like, this is the way Muslims do view Jesus. And we do accept this. And we think about this. And he cuts to the mayor just kind of nodding. You're like, I didn't know that. Wow, that's really fascinating. And then Bev has a response to that. And she starts saying something. And the mayor is just in the background going, well, yeah, that's a really good point. Just kind of nodding his head along. Like, he's the type of guy who just, he will agree with who, the last person to speak in any given situation. He doesn't think for himself. Um, but, but yeah, in this case, though, the mayor, you can understand why we do that, right, Ryan, because that was after his daughter, you know, was called up to walk in church, and she did. It was a miracle that happened. So now he's even more, like you say, he was always a bit of a, a pushover. We see that because mm-hmm. Bev manipulated them into taking the settlement from the oil company, and then right. she pushed most of that money into building some kind of recreational center adjacent mm-hmm. to the church. So completely a cash grab by Bev there. but. You know, he went along with it. That's already proof. But now he's even more firmly in her camp because of that miracle he witnessed. And that's what they're using to justify handing out Bibles in the classroom. The fact that they have proof that God or the Christian God is the real God. Mm-hmm. And now it's okay to proselytize, you know, so this would definitely happen in real life, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, of course, not not that there would be a real life miracle. But let's say, for instance, there is something unexplainable that happens. Mm-hmm. And then definitely people will say, okay, you see, we're right. You were wrong. Now everybody just has to you know, follow along or, or you're for the chopping block. <laughs> and that's what Bev is doing here. There are two kind of big points that I wanted to touch on before we wrap it up. And one is kind of everything we see in the last two episodes, particularly once there becomes an outbreak and it is not subtle it's like the church service turns into Jonestown when their whole gig is basically, we will show you a, one of our followers committing suicide, but because he has been, because he has taken the blood of this angel, he will rise up from the dead. And then they start passing out buckets of, or glasses of water that have like rat poison in them and people start dying and everybody's freaking out and they come back to life. And then they turn into vampire. And like the last episode is like the walking dead where you have like these they get out of the church they're just attacking their neighbors their parents anybody yeah. who wasn't at church it's it turns into this horrific kind of blood fest but i i wanted to talk to you about i wanted to ask you guys about that what you thought of the finale in terms of it turning into this kind of apocalyptic you know climactic situation where it's like this like race to survive race to the sunrise and the the 
issue of actually the gore and the violence, because one thing I know, you mentioned that they never say the word vampire in the show. Even the depictions of vampires, other than the angel, the creature, the, the antediluvian sort of that comes out of the, 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 uh, the desert. We don't see them with like fangs or anything like that. We don't see them like ripping each other's throats out or something like they go in to bite, but Flanagan is pretty restrained compared to what you would see in a normal horror movie, you know, these days. Um, it's, there's lot, there's blood, but it's, he pulls back compared to what you could see. And we don't see like the rending of flesh or like fangs like diving into the neck or stuff like that with like a little bit of a, with an exception of like the monster. So what did you guys think of how the vampires are actually depicted in the last episodes? I, I Something I think is interesting is yes, you know, most of the violence has this kind of like, almost like PG-ishness to it, where it's like, okay, you can see they're jumping on each other and there's blood everywhere, but you don't actually see it. But there's that's not true all the time. Right. There are there are these like moments of extreme violence where they they just like um they just show you. And I feel like those moments are much more are are much are very powerful because it isn't a blood fest all the time. So I, I I think like one of the moments that really got to me was, um, oh, why can't I remember her name? Um, Riley's mom, Flynn, Annie. Anne, Annie? Annie, when Annie Flynn cuts her own throat, that was a really violent and in right there. And I felt like that, that moment was more like, was more poignant because all of the other violence was mostly just screams in the shadows. Yeah. I, I just, I felt like it, it made like, this is more of a kind of atmospheric horror. You know, the mystery and the shadows are what make it scary. And then like they, they, they don't, they don't use a lot of jump scares. And I like that. I mean, we, we see, I, I think the end where, like we've got these two scenes where the vampire is is feeding off from someone, which I have to say, like really, really harkens back to Dracula in terms of the vampire almost lo- it, it almost looks sexual. I don't, I don't know if it, like, it seemed that I, I way to you guys, but yeah. I mean, especially especially when he's feeding from Aaron, and it, and I think like it probably makes it worse the fact that you know, when she's cutting his wing and he looks and she reaches up and kind of gently guides his, his head back down um, in the way he like wraps his, his long fingers around like his victim's head. Like it, it's really creepy. Like it, the, the, the fact that he's drinking their blood is secondary to the, the almost um, like invasive nature of you know, it, it, it's, it, be, it feels more like a rape in terms of like the way he's in, invading them. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess it kind of is like, he's like taking their humanity from them. Cause if they, like when they die, he can kind of take that from them. But it, it's that kind of, that worked for me that there wasn't this, there wasn't just like blood and gore nonstop. It was like, here's this moment. This is going to be pretty violent. And but, like those moments stand out to me. Like, like we didn't talk about, but Pike's death, 
was probably one of the most disturbing moments for me in the whole show. And some pretty awful things happen, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But the the violence of that moment was really disturbing. And like the 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 coldness of it, like the fact that like Bev poisoned that dog on purpose and then stood there and watched him die and watched his owner like wail in anguish and had like a satisfied smirk on her face. Yeah, the horror was ramped up to extreme levels at the end of the last two episodes. I think the end of the last, uh, the, 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 the sixth episode and then in the seventh episode, it was just complete chaos. And I love that. I love it when something, I mean, King does that in his book, Stephen King, you know, where something like Needful Things, for instance, the end just culminates in this complete, uh, you know, destruction of an entire town and people doing horrible things to each other. And it shows the unraveling of the community their belief system and obviously also their, you know, a connection as, you know, just common human beings, you know, they're not human anymore. They don't know the rules. All they know is they have this bloodlust that's driving them. One thing I was disappointed though uh, in was that the fact that um, the vampire doesn't seem to be at the end, very intelligent. He's just going with it that, okay, now there's destruction. That's what he's waiting for. Just, you know, unrestrained, uh, bloodlust on his part there's no sense of intelligence in fact he ignores damage done to him at the end which which leads to his demise simply because he's so you know intent upon just uh ripping out throats and um that part does not square itself with the beginning where he was sort of showing restraint and even entering the church and emptying or uh you know putting his blood into the the cups and uh into the wine that part was weird yeah, it had, I a, think it had a sense of itself to like even like dress. I mean, it was wearing the robes yeah. earlier. Yes. It was wearing the hat and the trench coat and everything. So exactly, yeah, yeah. the depiction. And you're right because like even before it attacks Aaron and it's feeding on her while she's like cutting its wings, we saw that when it was in the house when um, Warren and Lisa confronted, and she's like shooting it, and it doesn't even notice because it's feeding, and like. How many, because it already fed on Millie right at the church, like when it kills her, like how many times did it have to feed that night? And why hadn't it been attacking that many people on previous nights that we never had a sense of that? Yeah, well, it was almost I mean, like glutting itself. Like once it started, yeah, yeah I, I, I felt the same way. I thought it was really bizarre and I didn't, and I didn't like that at all. But not only does it, he doesn't even just ignore when Lisa shoots him, he like swats at her. Like she's a fly, like mm-hmm. he knows she's there. And he's just like, like, I thought it was weird. Cause I'm like, I clearly that woman's almost dead. There's two live bodies standing right next to you. Why wouldn't you go and go after them? Mm-hmm. If you're so like into your bloodlust. So that was definitely bizarre. And, and it didn't fit. Like there, there's a few weird things that I happen with that, the monster in terms of like how, how it's functioning that, don't really fit together very well. And I totally agree, Herman. That one was weird. I think there are some weaknesses in the finale, in the last episode. I think there are just some problems where it's, it doesn't take the show off the rails. I still found the ending to be satisfactory, but there were just little issues that just kind of made me like kind of cock my head to the side. Like, no, why is that? Like part of it was just like the fact that Riley's parents, Ed and Annie, both of them seem to be fine. They both ended up dying, like Ed died in the church to help the others escape. And then she cut her throat like in order to distract Bev and Sturge so that the others could escape from uh, the doctor's office. 
and then they just kind of like find each other and they're like, yeah, all the, we're vampires now, but not really feeling like drinking blood tonight. It's like, okay, why? What, what made them more special that day than all the other newly born vampires in the church who are going psycho? Like they do make a comment about that. Like he, you know, when the, when they encounter each other in the streets and um, you know, she, she, they're both dead at that point. And he makes a comment about how like, like he can feel it. Like it hurts. And she's like, yeah, I feel it too. And, and, but they also say like, Hey, you've got a lot of blood in you. He's like, this is all mine. And she's like, Oh, this is mine too. Right. It's like a, it's a point of pride that they haven't (laughs) killed anyone yet. And, and they, they say that he's like, it gets really bad, but you can, you can fight it off, which I I find really interesting because with all the undertones in terms of talking about vices and addiction part of me thinks that like Riley sacrificed himself. Like we can look at this as Riley sacrificed himself so that Aaron could watch him burn in the sun. So she would believe him so that like, hopefully she would run. I also think that he did this because he knew he would kill someone and he, he couldn't, he couldn't let that happen. Like he, he's like, I've already gone through this for four years. I'm not going to kill another person. And, and like, he, he doubles down and, and decides like, this is what I'm going to do. Cause he says that like, you know, when she starts getting scared after the story, she's like, why'd you bring me out here? I can't like, you brought me out here and I can't escape. And, and he's like, no, I brought us out here. So I can't escape. Cause I'm not strong enough. Cause he resolved to do this. Right. So I don't know. I, I, I just saw like this interesting strength in that family where, you know, they're going to, they're going to hold on to like, they're a very flawed family but like put put them next to Bev, who is like such a flat, awful character, right? Like we could we could say like we can talk about her a lot, but I don't know if I can. Just she's like not, yeah, she's, 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 she's not, a stereotype. Yeah, there isn't actually that. She's I was actually thinking there isn't that much dimensionality to her character. Right. Like she's not she's really a caricature of a fanaticism. Yes. Yeah, I think King lifted her directly from Mrs. White from Carrie and also Mrs. Carmody from The Mist. You know, so that is the yeah, oh, oh yeah, yeah. now. Now, we know Mike Flanagan is, you know, he's unabashedly a King fan and he has, uh, you know, said King is his inspiration. But this is a little bit too on the nose. I mean, if you say someone's your inspiration, you shouldn't lift something directly and not make any significant changes. He did that with the character of Beth, which is unfortunate, you know, because um, uh, he doesn't mind being called, you know, uh, uh, an apostle of King. But I think this is a little bit too directly lifted from from a previous you know, character or property, you know? So yeah, she was not, she was a good character for the story, but she was not a a great character in herself where you would want to know what happened in her past or what turned her into this fanatic. I'm not even remotely interested in that. Whereas in the rest of the characters, yes, I do want to know how did Aaron get her baby? Who was the father? I do want to know about, you know, Riley's venture capitalist life as a venture capitalist, how boring that might be. I still want to know, (laughs) I, you know, how did he become an alcoholic? All that kind of stuff. A Bev, no, I can pretty much see she's, uh, you know, one-dimensional in, in her fanaticism. Actually, Ainge, I think you kind of, you did hit upon something that I think now helps me kind of square what I was thinking about Ed and Annie, because I was kind of, I was like thinking, well, what made them special? And I think it's just the sort of the fact that you mentioned there is a kind of goodness in them. And I think that was a deliberate choice because it, you pointed this out also, like who seems to be the heroes of the story? Who are the good guys that we're rooting for? Riley, 
He's an atheist. He, he does not follow the uh, practicing Catholic. Sheriff Hassan, Muslim, does not, is not a Catholic. Sarah is not practicing. She's a woman of science. Atheist. Go to I church. think she's probably atheist. She probably is an atheist too. And, uh, and also being a lesbian certainly wouldn't be necessarily welcomed in a, in a very strict, very devout church. Um, so all of them seem like outsiders. Uh, so could, by making those three some of the central heroes that we're rooting for, does by the fact that they are excluded, is that another way of saying the church is wrong? Well, there are exceptions to that. And I think we have the Flins who, you're right, like they're just essentially good people. They can go to church every week. They can believe in these messages, but when everybody turns on each other and starts killing each other, it's like, they're not bad. And they they don't have to, they don't have to become monsters just because the religion says it's okay to be monsters now. And I think Erin um, is the other one like that. Like, I think it's important that her being the sort of fourth apostle for gospelist, as you described, the fact that she also went to church every, like every week and she was a believer too. And she felt that there was a greater spiritual meaning. And that's also perhaps why she gets not one, but two big monologues about death. And I, I did kind of want to move on to that before we close things out. Like we get a lot of speeches about death. We get some from Paul. We get one from Riley. We get two from Aaron when, after she's had her miscarriage. And what does she think heaven is like? But, and then there's the one at the very end as she is dying, as this vampire is draining her. But she's also, because it is so distracted, because it is so in heat, in the throes of passion, sort of, to describe it, she's able to slice these giant holes in its wings so that when the sun rises, we see it trying to fly away, but it's, it's, I, I think we, we found that the ending really wasn't that ambiguous, that the thing does die. I was just going to say, I, I had this weird realization with Aaron in that scene, because we, we had this like weird little loop, like a, a time is a flat circle moment where I was like, yeah. ah, because we have, she, as she's dying, she's back in that moment where she was sitting with Riley on the couch. And I don't think that was a cut scene. I think that she's imagining she's back with him mm-hmm. and it's, it's a new, it, it's a new speech. Like it, it's like her synapses are firing and she's having this memory, but the other, the other like speech she had that night was about her mother and the dove and how she was holding the dove and she was supposed to hold it as her mother clipped the wings. And it, it just kind of, it, it's such a, it seems like it's a focus on just how awful her mother is, but you don't like really need that to know how awful her mother was, but you do need it to know that she learned about what clipping wings does to a being. And she clips the angel's wings. That is a great, great. uh, Yeah. Correlation there between those two images. Yeah. That's definitely what, what, what they intended to convey. That's a great, you know, that I almost forgot about that. I think I, I read that somewhere when I was preparing for the show. Someone else also mentioned it. It's That's another sign of Flanagan's brilliance, right? The mm-hmm. fact that there's so many deep layers and you kind of have to, uh, you, you kind of have to pay attention all the time. Um, so that the fact that you saw that, Angela, well done, because I probably wouldn't have seen it if I didn't read someone's comments online. But yeah, it, 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 it sort of brings it full circle for her as well. I mean, this thing took away her baby essentially, you know, it's blood, you know, it was sort of a a cause of her losing her baby, which was the only joy in her life. Um, Even returning to the island, that was her hope 
everything she was putting her life um, into. And then it was taken away from her. So this is her revenge, but also her, you know, uh, making peace with her mother, the kind of woman she was, and the fact that clipping wings at the end is the only way to save, you know, this community or to stop, save the rest of the world, essentially, if you think about it. Because what, mm-hmm. what did it want to do? Even, I mean, Bev said they want to get off the island now that they want to spread the word, spread the gospel, essentially spreading the blood, spreading the infection, turning the whole world into vampires. So Bev is actually the savior of humankind. <laughs> oh, not Bev. Sorry. I mean, Aaron. Aaron yeah. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Bev to take it to, to, for the other sort of caricature and the horrible, like she is the, like they become the sort of archetypal religious figures that push their religion on people who don't necessarily want it. It's like they are going to convert the world by force, by violence. Uh, like you either become one of us or you die. But kind of just getting back to that, like what did you think of Aaron's speech at the end or any of the speeches about death um, or even the sheriff when he's talking to Ali, his son, uh, and kind of like talking about like his, his wife dying and her suffering and that from just, I mean, with all of the big sort of grand speeches, what did you think of the writing in general or the, those death speeches in particular? How did you feel about those? Okay. I didn't like it at first because it sounds like characters are just endlessly monologuing and just conveying Flanagan's, you know, uh, ideas about religion and community and bigotry and everything that's happening in America. But, but then, you know, I realized that again, with the religious aspect too, once you're used to these small town communities, um, the people there are endlessly patient. They're willing to just let you talk because that's what they do in small communities. They're, they give you the time of day. They let you just, you know, talk their ears off about something. I mean, not just older people, even younger people. Uh, if you go to small towns in Australia, where I've been a lot lately because my, my family, some of my family has moved there. And since Taiwan, you know, where I'm at now is basically just a couple of hours. Well, not a couple of hours, let's say six hours uh, plane ride to Australia. We've been going there lots well before the pandemic. And the people in those small town Australian you know, places are like that. They let you talk. They let you monologue. They let you say your piece. They're not like, you know, a city folk who are impatient and we want to get on with things and we, you know, flip between ta- channels all the time, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of stuff. We're, we're in a rush. So for me, then it made sense that these people would do that. They're all from small towns. They, they let you talk. So it's, it, it seemed unnatural for me in the beginning, but then I sort of squared it with myself in my mind. I was like, it made sense. And then once you get into concentrating on what they're actually saying, it's, it's very profound, both from Aaron's perspective. Let's say if you talk about two great speeches, which is Aaron talking about death and Riley talking about death on Aaron's couch, where I thought they were definitely going to, it was going to transition into something else. Like then just their unrestrained passion for each other, just exploding. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, those two speeches are probably some of the best. And if you compare them to each other, they're full of, very salient points, both from a religious perspective and from Ryan's perspective as just a, a, a realist or a naturalist or a rationalist or a humanist, whatever you want to call him, an atheist with that really thought about these things. They're full of profound information. I would say everybody that's everybody, even if you're religious, if you're far right, if you're liberal, if you're lapsed Catholic, whatever, listen to those two speeches and try to square it in your own mind and about how that makes sense with your own personal ideology, because I think you can learn something from it, but you can also add something to it. So at the end of the day, I love those, those monologues, (laughs) these characters just suddenly starting to talk and people just listening. 
And um, yeah, so actually that's one of the strengths, not a detriment as most critics seem to think. Yeah, I agree. Like I, I felt the same that Herman did, that there was some like major monologuing. Like they talk a lot in this show. Like it's a, it's a lot of like I'm either dialogue or monologues, but man, they are really beautiful speeches. Um, I, I think the, the, the death speeches that Riley and Aaron have that night on the couch, I think are both like really beautiful and compelling, but Aaron's speech when she's dying, that like, that choked me up. <laughs> like I, like I, w- I was crying and it, I thought it was really beautiful. I thought it was, it was able to wrap together. Like I really liked it was echoing what Riley had said. Like she really focused on the physical, like firing of the synapses in her brain and like physically what was happening. Like she's touching the ground and, and her atoms and things like that, you know, essentially like seeing herself as stardust, but like also meshing that with her, her view of heaven and, um, and love but it was interesting because her her first speech was really steeped in in religious language and her last speech wasn't as much but it still had those echoes so it was almost like her speech and Riley's speech mashed together with like this new realization i thought it i thought it was really like i liked it i thought it was beautiful i can i can definitely say how some people might have seen the show as too talky though because there were a lot of speeches Mm -hmm. and a lot of them were repetitive (laughs) true enough um overall i i really really liked this show um there were had some nitpicky problems but that's true of everything i mean i don't think anything is necessarily like perfect but um just from the get-go i i got really into it just the sort of world building of this place, the the slow building, creepy atmosphere like you. I thought there were some like creepy, scary moments in the first couple episodes before you really know what the show is about. And you're just trying to catch up. Like, why is this making me uncomfortable? Why is this getting scary? What What is happening in this world? The slow building like that, the, the kind of gothic atmosphere. Um, I, I just, that's, that's a, particular version of horror that i really really like as well as a horror that sort of encapsulates a problem with the world where we we see people under stress but very relatable human characters that we see and they talk the way we talk they look the way we look and they have to deal with the crap that we have to deal with and we see how hardship can turn people against each other and we see sort of the evil that men do uh and and just kind of like these day-to-day crimes and small form horrors or kind of more macroscopic horrors with the way uh people desperate for help or or needing to believe in something can be perverted can be corrupted and can be taken advantage of and swindled and told that any abhorrent behavior can be justified uh and and that's something that we're seeing a lot of today and and this show takes that type of everyday horror that we have to live with 
and then just ramps it up by injecting some kind of supernatural horrific element like this you know monstrous blood sucker in the story i just think it's a really really nice mesh of those two types of things um yeah really really enjoyed it recommended for everybody um hopefully you've seen it before you listen to us or i think we've probably taken most of the best parts for you um but if you did listen to this without watching the show give it a shot um it's it's really really cool so hopefully hopefully this was a good uh endorsement for it uh and with that i want to thank my guests angela drew love you baby uh herman love you as well to you know a different extent i love podcasting with you uh herman where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you in the podcastosphere well, I'm mostly on Twitter. You can find me there at Dark Longbox. I'm also at Into Weird. Those are the two main shows um, that I do, The Longbox of Darkness and Into the Weird. But then, of course, they can listen to those podcasts on any podcast chair as well. Just look for Into the Weird, a Marvel Bronze Age comic book podcast, and The Longbox of Darkness, a Hard Cops podcast. Yeah, that's basically me. <laughs> now, Ryan, Thanks, and I want, do want to thank you guys for letting me come on the show because it's always a pleasure recording with you. And Angela, this is the first time I've recorded with you. Hopefully, we'll do this again in the future. Um, I, hopefully, I left a good impression. <laughs> so, yes, it was thanks, so great guys. talking to you. <laughs> it was awesome. So please have me back as soon as you can, Ryan. Thanks, no problem. Guys. When you're sad and when you're lonely And you haven't got a friend Just remember that death is not the end And all that you held sacred Falls down and does not mend Just remember that death is not the end All right, listeners, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of FW Presents. If you enjoyed our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you know, after the fact, you can leave a comment on the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any other show on the Fire and Water Network. Also, please consider sponsoring the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. For more information, head on over to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Once more, thank you to my guests. Thank you for listening, and have a happy Halloween. The death is not the end. Not the end. Not the end. Just remember... The death is not the end Not the end Not the end Just remember The death is not the end Like, I, I've got, I, I don't know, I've come down to the, the fact that it was, like, there's weird moments for me in the show that made sense the second viewing, right? Like, so Millie getting so ticked off during the Good Friday Mass mm-hmm. was just, like, bizarre to me the first viewing. I was like, what is she so mad about? And then, of course, like, now, like, oh, because, like, she was in love with him and knew him really well, and now he's, like, being nuts, And so when she starts yelling, like, that's not the man I knew, 
and, and and it's like Sarah's father, right? Like all of that makes so much more sense now. Um, you know, the things like the the makeup and, and such. But like the 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 thing that really bugged me is, you know, Sarah did talk about the fact that like this thing might function like a virus and be able to flush out of you know a person's bot like a person's body might be able to push it out and so that scene when warren and lisa are sitting in the boat and lisa says i can't feel my legs it seems like the implication there is that they're going to be okay because their bodies are going to be able to like fight fight this off and push it out of their system but the last time she took communion was probably what 24 hours ago or less yeah and and so like she wasn't losing feeling in her legs every day so the 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 implication that it like her body fought this out by the time like they're sitting there like doesn't really mesh with me like it, it seems like that would have been too quick i understand like the moment like the poignance of the moment that as they're watching the the island burn and seeing like the ashes of all of the inhabitants, like kind of flaking by them that her saying it in that moment kind of like ties up the show in this like really neat bow. But that, that just kind of bothered me in terms of just continuity where I was like, I don't think that's what would happen. But the other thing I was thinking of is that if the vampire is kind of functioning how vampires tend to function in like other vampiric lore that, you know, he is. If you kill the head vampire, then the. Right. The the rest of them are done. So, which would suggest that all of those people were, were going to be condemned no matter what, like if, even if they had found shelter, the fact that that vampire got caught in the sun was burnt up was gone and then all of its all of its infection right all of the blood that was infecting others is also gone which would mean like suddenly lisa can't feel her legs at the moment when it's sunrise yeah that's that's the way i took it was that that when she said she couldn't feel her legs i thought i took it as that meant like the head vampire whose blood was in her like it had been was dead now that wouldn't have cured any of the others because they had died and they'd all die they they were vampires she wasn't at that point um sort of like in dracula when it was feeding on nina through like the second half like once they killed dracula she was okay because she had drunk its blood but she hadn't been killed by him right so i think when i said everything would have been okay i meant that they weren't going to survive even if they had even if they had hidden and they weren't right, the right, right, right. Okay. I think they still would have all died. Yeah. I don't know. And I feel like with so many unanswered questions in the show, like I, I liked that that was sort of open-ended, but I, I feel like I can latch on to enough to be like, no, I know what happened. <laughs> but the other side of that is that there there seems to be a major message of like about fanaticism. And and if this vampire is kind of embodying like the the evil or the virus that fanaticism is then it probably isn't gone because it's not that easy to get rid of extremism and fanatic ideas 